everyone, and welcome to the Thriving Minds podcast. I'm Professor Selena Bartlett, and today we're joined by Professor Kerry Carrington. She is currently an adjunct professor at the University of Sunshine Coast in law and society. And we're going to have a really great conversation today. It turns out we have a lot more in common than we realized outside being professors at once QT for Kerry and where I am now about justice. And Kerry has been advocating her whole life outside running the School of Justice for everyday people trying to stop all sorts of different things. And if you can see, you can't see her background on audio, but on video, she's got how to break the silence. And I think I think without breaking the silence, everything keeps continuing. So welcome, Kerry, to the podcast. It's so great to have you. Thank you for inviting me, Selena. So, Kerry, can you tell the audience a little bit about how you became head of School of Justice and and became really an academic in justice, not just doing it on the everyday? Well, I'll have to give you the short version. Um, Basically, um, it was a bit of an historical accident. Um, I needed a home when I was homeless and young and I needed to escape a very uh, dysfunctional background and upbringing and was left without any parents and so um, I discovered that university was free and not only free but I would be paid by the government to attend so I just I ended up a student. It's an amazing story isn't it so what when was that? um, Okay so the first year of my university was in 1980 I went to Griffith University Um, yes I was living alone without any parents age of 15 and I was living with my brother then Randall Carrington um, until he was taken away and locked up in a mental institution. So Kerry um, the amazing story is how many people listening would wish their education was free can you see it made a big difference for your life hey like it was free for me too up until 1988. So I was the very first in my family I'm the youngest of six the first in my family to go to university Um, because it was just not available and I was one of the first um, lot that benefited from the election of the Gough Whitland government and from the university um, being access to university based on on, um, merit and not on money and so I was just very fortunate and that made a credible change to my life because access to education is is about access to justice it's a leveler and so then um, when I finished my degree I went on and did a PhD um, um, and then I just sort of but my PhD was on female delinquency and it was on girls who um, studied 1046 girls who ended up in juvenile justice system and then I discovered that half of them were in fact state wards and that most of them were in fact not in fact delinquents but, but victims. So are either victims of homelessness, family violence, right? Um, and I discovered that most of them should never have been put in these institutions. I also discovered that the institutions we'd set up to care for neglected children were in fact the same ones they set up to care for delinquent children. So they mixed them together and they treated and they treated them all as if they they were offenders. Um, and so they were in the in, so I became passionate about that, and that number hasn't changed in 2022, by the way. It's actually escalated, I believe. What's that? The number, the number of, of kids from uh in from child protection and other places. Oh yes. Male. 
fact, if anything, it's increasing. So you get this. Um, um, <clears throat> so children who have 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 fam who come from traumatic backgrounds who end up in the care sector, they're the ones who are most vulnerable to being um, doing, doing the fast track from care to detention, and then from there going from there into jail. Um, and that it's a whole intergenerational life cycle, and that's why also many of them are Indigenous or they're from very poor backgrounds. Now, that almost happened to me, and that could have happened to me, but very luckily, for some strange reason, it didn't happen to me. Let's um, and... focus on that bit for a second because I think this is the remarkable part of your story before we turn to your brother's story, which is a bit of a different story, but I have a similar one. So... Um, who was the person that told you about this university being free and seeing you seeing the potential in you that obviously you didn't have parents to do it? And who who was the can you think of the aha moment where all of a sudden yeah. it occurred to you that you could do that? It was it was it was a school teacher and it was a school guidance counselor. And we we want to amplify this message because this happens nearly every day for and teachers are so underappreciated and underpaid and doing such hard job. And I'm still in contact with some of those teachers. They were Can just give them a shout out. Give them a I shout give out. Give a shout out to my teachers, Pat Offy, Jules Johnson, Clarky, Danny Boyle, um, Peter Flaskus. Um, they used to go surfing with us too, some of them, and some of them. And anyway, so. Where were they? Was this Maroochydore? Maroochydore High School. Fantastic. So I went to Budgeon Primary School and Maroochydore State High School, and they're just a bunch of teachers who used to support all of us. And they were just amazing. And then also the mothers of some of my friends used to feed me and feed my brother because we were always hungry. Um, and so shout out to all of them as well. So if yeah, I hadn't had those, those, you know, de facto families and, and those wonderful teachers, I would never have ever have got to where I am today. And um, obviously we want to share your beautiful brother's story. Mm. And I think the interesting thing here, Kerry, the reason I, I pivot here is because this is all families. This is my story too. Like I went to university. My sister ended up in Walston Park like your brother did. Um, and people always ask these questions. So how come you went to university and how come your sister ended up there? You know, this is the question I tried to address for a long time too, which I think I found the answer to. So do you want to talk a little bit about your sure. story? And, yes, and well, Randall's? I will. Okay, so really my story is my, my brother's story. They're intermeshed. So he was born one year before me. Um, basically, our mother left us when I was 15 and went and lived with her boyfriend. Our father had already left the home at much earlier because he was a chronic alcoholic. He came back from the war and had PTSD. And so it was just Randall and I living in what was the family house but with no money. And um, my mother wanted me to go out and get a job. And I said, no, I'm going to go to school. And my teachers were saying, no, Carrie, you can come to school. We'll, we'll support you. We'll support you. So my teachers used to pay for my excursions and things and my teachers and I had friends that used to feed me and the women at the tuck shop would give me leftovers. So that's kind of how I survived. So this and, is the village uh, taking care of its Yes. Kids. So they sort of took over. And then this really tragic thing happened where I was I was I I was coping and and my brother wasn't going to school. He left school the day he turned 15. Um, he used to get the cuts every day. He hated school. He was ostracised. He was treated. My, turns out my brother was gay, bisexual. 
Um, he was discovered by police wandering naked and then there was a discovery of queer pornography and then somehow or another he ended up in Lozen House, which was a, um, a locked ward at the Brisbane Hospital. He was 17 years of age. I was just, I, I must have been 16. Um, he and I have been living together for, like this for some time. So then my whole world shook. I was there by myself and he was put in a locked ward and then when it, he just deteriorated, he, when he went in, he'd been tripping out on gold top mushrooms. And so I, I knew he was trippy and I was, I was saying, look, he'll come down, give him, give him a few days. But they didn't. They gave him shock treatment and then they gave him more and more shock treatment and then he ended up becoming comatose. And so the day he turned 18, I went to visit him to give him a pair of flared jeans because it was, you know, the 19... 1970s and that flare jeans were really groovy and turned up to a Lozen house and he's not there. They told me he, they'd sent him to, um, made him a ward of the state and they admitted him to Pierce House at Walston Park. So off we go to Pierce House, Walston Park, some time later, took a long time to get there. Um, and a maze of buildings. It was just like entering a whole separate world, like a you know, a Mars on this earth. It was a total institution, had many, many roads, it had laundries, it had sex-segregated houses. Um, but my brother was put in the locked wall Pierce house and the sister house was called Osler house. They're notorious in Australian history for being the very worst, uh, most abusive mental houses in the whole of Australian history. He stayed there for 18 months. I visited him there on numerous occasions. Um, they gave him so much shock treatment. He became comatose. I would go to visit him. Um, I couldn't. I, I was just desperate at one stage to, to, to get him to remember me or remember anything of himself. And I was looking into his eyes and it was as if he was in an existential crisis it was he was there but he wasn't there yes and then they were giving him yeah and then they were giving him so much pharmaceuticals as well but the most horrifying thing was that I witnessed not just his decline and I I witnessed him more from a beautiful young man so creative and a poet and an artist and really intelligent into a vegetable but not only that um I witnessed him being cruelly tortured and I witnessed I witnessed the most horrible event in my whole life I think was the first day I went to Pierce house I didn't know what it was like <laughs> and Randall wasn't there and we had to wait 15 minutes and every minute was a minute less you could see him so I went looking for him and I found him being surrounded by a pack of wardens he was naked and he was bending over a bunch of cloth I can feel your pain. I've I've actually sat in the same room <laughs> and watched my sister sitting in the corner like a piece of cardboard, catatonic from overdose of haloperidol. And she, she was only in that, I don't know if it's the same place, but a similar place, uh, lock up, made water the state. But you know, interestingly, this was 1988, 89, which is not that long in Australian Brisbane history. And it's just in the north part of Brisbane and most people living around there would have no idea what was going on there. 
I actually did went and visited a postdoc um, of mine that ended up with Julian Barr syndrome and end up there in a rehabilitation center. So it completely changed in the last 10 years or so, but it's a very traumatic thing for you to witness as well. And, yes. And you wouldn't realize that because you're just in survival mode, right? I Let didn't your realize brother, that. Your brother, I mean, that's just, mm. it's, it's just beyond comprehension. <laughs> I didn't I didn't realize just how much I'd internalized that trauma until 42 years later yes. when I was in fact getting counseling for dealing with the fact that I was a child sexual assault survivor as well from the age of 11 and I was getting counseling for that and then all the trauma about my brother started to unearth I had suppressed it for all that time and all those years and I never saw myself as a victim ever, and I still don't now, but I because my brother was the victim and um, I actually had survivor guilt all that time for 42 years. I, I Go back to your original question, for 42 years I thought, how come I survived and I thrived? I, my brain thrived and I thrived. I went to university and I've had a good career and I'm very happily retired and I've got all this energy now to put into this project about memorialising my brother and I'm seeking an inquiry into Walston Park, not just on his behalf, but on behalf of all the people who've gone through this experience at Walston Park, like your sister and many others of them. But, yeah, I, that, that question plagued me for 42 years and then I came up with the answer. Yeah. I don't have to feel guilt my trauma was privatised and whilst ever I didn't speak it, whilst ever I hid it, I felt the trauma, I felt the pain, I felt the ache, I felt the responsibility. Yeah. I've now put it out where it belongs. I've put it back to Walston Park. Yeah. And the I think shame and there. the guilt needs to go there, no longer here in my heart, no longer in my brain. It's, it, it's these state institutions that that did this to our relatives that need to take responsibility. But I also want to put it even a cast a wider net um, in my now kind of learnings as I, your journey was different to mine. I went to study the brain instead of doing the justice side of things. And I guess what I've learned is that there's a much wider net to cast and that's the breakdown of our ability to look after each other as a society, because it does take a village. You had the teachers wrap around you. And if Randall had the same, if he wasn't the one that was being, you know, like he just didn't get the same. There's lots of reasons that you can talk about why Randall didn't get the same wraparound at many parts of the journey that you did. But outside that, there's the whole multi-generational impacts like like alcoholism and domestic violence and, yeah. and you know, unlevel un playing fields that people are born into that they don't choose. Exactly. Also contribute to, and then it's our society not knowing how to handle the outcome of our lack of ability to teach families about the such importance of the environment around children's brain development. Absolutely. And Randall's brain, he had a very, very creative brain. He was an excellent poet. Um, and when he committed suicide at the age of 20 in 1980, he, he did so, um, he did have an extra disadvantage to me at that time in Queensland, um, being homosexual male, not female, that was an offence. Yeah. And 
Um, he, and he was threatened with the prospect of having to go back to his house and he chose to uh, kill himself. Yeah, so this is another thing, like even up until 1991, I think you were writing about in your blog, yeah. which we'll talk about later, you know, this was still a offence. You know, mm-hmm. this was, you know, it's just, uh, there's so many things here. That we it was an offence and it was also defined as a mental illness under the manual of mental illnesses. Yes, I know, so that it would get removed as well. Yeah. So there was two pathways that young homosexual, and they were mostly young homosexual men who were punished in those days. Um, one was through the criminal justice system um, and then the, the other was through the mental health in, um, system. And I think the reason my brother ended up in the mental health system is because he was 17 and not 18. Yeah. So he was 17, they put him in a mental health ward and then when he turned 18, they sent him to Pierce House Pierce House, which is the most, it, 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 it's a place where 28 men lived in one room. Yes. And many of those 28 men were convicted of, some of them were convicted of seriously violent crimes. And um, it was for the forensic mentally insane and most violent. And my brother had to sleep with those men and he became the bum boy and he was raped over and over and over again in that place. Um, so, you know, these places have a hell of a lot to account for. How on earth did my brother end up being scheduled into that place? Yes. Um, uh, it's it's such a deep, and and I, I wish I could say to you in 2022 that we've really learnt from all of this. <laughs> I wish you could say it's really different now, Kerry. <laughs> I wish we could say that too. But unfortunately, I, I guess we can have this podcast. That's new. And at least you can be on this journey of, in your career, you've tried to break the silence on lots of different things to make a difference. But I guess where we need to really start breaking the silence too is on family secrets that are kept over generations to sustain this kind of belief that all being gay is bad or having a mental illness is bad. um, And so no one talks about it. And then people do get institutionalised to hide it too. So there's, you know, it's a multi-layered over centuries of history. You know, there's so many examples of people locking up their children in aristocratic circles. For example, they found five kids, you know, that were in institutions that no one ever talked about that were part of the royal family. I don't know if you watched that episode of The no, Crown. No, and, I you know, so, the, so it's a multi-layered Yes, the institutions uh, have a lot to answer for and and our government too, but it's also each of us because we're all responsible in our own society for how we look after people too. Absolutely. So in my case, um, my my brother's suicide was not acknowledged and that was hidden. And, And a lot of his friends who never knew he was put away in that mental mental institution some of them only discovered it when I put out my post in the last couple of weeks and contacted me to say I never knew that um so he was incredible not only did he go through that horrible experience but he then had nobody to confide in or share it with or other because he was 
it wasn't acceptable. So he had to hide it as well. And then when after his death and, and after he suicided, um, then I found myself being complicit in just not, well, I wasn't able to talk about it for years because I was so grief-stricken and went into denial. And But then I realised that I've come to realise now that the modus operandi of who I am, what I do, that yeah. is breaking the silence, the quest for justice, at the core of that is the quest forever to break the silence about my brother, that trauma, that privatised trauma that I've lived in my private space inside my head for 42 years and kept it secret or kept it. Kept and I think there's so many families like this, so many families like this. It be, like I know from my own personal experience with my sister, it became the family problem. Like there was nowhere to go. It was like she had nowhere to go. Um, it became, and, you know, fortunately we could wrap around some things that maybe made it a bit better. Um, but still, I think that was the biggest learning for me was seeing that there was nowhere for the family to turn in a way. And then because you're not meant to tell anyone about this either, <laughs> it becomes even worse in a way. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah. Anyway, yeah. so in your now that you're retired and you're going to take up the mantle for Randall and his and as I have for my sister Francesca in the work I do, um, what are you starting to learn about and and discover? Because you are a scientist researcher as well. Um, I did see that you've started working, or you, you came across the lady that had found the cemeteries. Yes. So, I, so I've discovered an enormous amount about the history. I've been researching the history of Walston Park, um, 155 years, over 50,000 patients. Um, there, it, it had its own morgue and had three cemeteries. Um, over the period of time, at least 2,800 bodies have been, were buried there. Um, they were just given numbers, not names, on their tombstones. Um, a lot of the bodies are still buried and missing. There's never been an inquest into that part. So where, is, this in North, is this in Wilson Park in North yes. Brisbane, in that area just where his house was? In that area, in Goodnup. Oh, this one's yeah, in, in, in Goodna. Yeah, yeah Goodna, Goodna Waco, because um, it, 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 it occupied over 300 hectares of land, huge hectares of land, um, that it's just gone through. It, there was some inquiries in the 1860s, 1860s and 1880s, sorry, and 1890s, but there's been no inquiries into Alston Park over its over the 20th century. Now, the 20th century was its era of mass incarceration, mass in, in it became a holding pen yeah. for basically all the people in society who didn't have that wraparound <laughs> ended up there. Yeah. And so they and they were people with disabilities, people born down. It's terrible. It's just terrible to down think syndrome. how many people, syndrome, people born with um and you know. Young and I even discovered through Adele Chenoweth, a professor, excuse me, a professor Adele Chenoweth, um, that girls as young as thirteen um, who were considered too too difficult for the childcare system, child welfare system, they were even um, scheduled and put into the female Osler House, which also used to be called Ward Eight. Um, at Boston Park, and these are girls aged thirteen, and they were they were transferred from the from the child protection system 
in, and this is in the 1980s as well, uh, 1970s, 80s, and they were, they were transferred there into um, the women's lockup and they were sexually abused and raped systemically, um, systematically by the by the wardens. Um, so, and so one of them even had a baby um, and had that child taken from her care. Now, you can read their stories have all been published in a book called The Good Girls by Del Chenoweth. Uh-huh. Yep. Um, so I've discovered that there's just layers of atrocity that have occurred at this place over the history, uh, over its history. Um, I've also discovered historians, Professor Mark Fanane and Dr um, Yorick Smale, who they did, they've done a whole lot of research on on Wolston Park as a site of punishment, not as a site of treatment of mental illness, but simply as a site of containment. Mm-hmm. Um, and they, Mark Fanane in 2008, put on an exhibition at the Brisbane Museum called Remembering Goodna. Now, Goodna is another name for Wolston Park Mental Hospital because it's had a, it had many name changes to try and deflect from its, its, its history. Um, and 50 or 60,000 Queenslanders went through that exhibition and then they left remarks and they left stories and some of them. And then there was um, also former inmates and patients who recounted their stories. Um, and they were just similar stories to my brother's stories of abuse, of straitjackets, of being tranquilized, of being raped, of being bashed being strangled with towels so there's there's a lot of people alive today who were in there and were treated like this or people like you and me whose relatives were in there and subsequently they've died or committed suicide we're still here we we are the living we can get we we are the only ones who can seek justice and this is a quest now that I'm on is to seek justice for the Patients and the relatives of those who've been through Walston Park and Goodna, and it's 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 now that we can do it, and not in a hundred years' time. I've also discovered. I tried to get a hold of my brother's patients' records through state archives. They have a hundred years embargo on them. A hundred years. So that means I would be dead. But it also means every single person who would have known anything about his story firsthand would be dead. Now that is a good protection for a state government or a state institution, but that is um, hiding the past is, is not going to help the survivors and it's not going to help any of us now. Well, so I don't they- think you can ever hide from your past um, as a society because I think you can try to eliminate something but it will always come back to bite you. I think that's the thing, the collective collective societal trauma that we're probably experiencing now as we try and reconcile our past already at the Indigenous level too. So I think think even if you get rid of 90% of people or memories, there's always 10% that will be more than 100% in terms of response rate later if you don't deal with it appropriately in a human way. Yeah, I mean, there's been lots of atrocities like initially the Holocaust, initially, which, which they attempted to hide, um, the Los Desperaciados, which means the disappeared in, that's Spanish for the disappeared in, in Latin America, that all occurred um, at the time of the military dictatorships in the 1980s. 
1970s, sorry, at the same time as all this was occurring, there was a, you know, there was a huge effort on behalf of those state institutions to hide the past, but it didn't. It didn't. They did. The past was found, and it was found by the relatives and the survivors of all those who who were taken. And I think again here, this is an appeal to all the relatives and to the survivors, and to the people who worked there. Because don't forget, they they didn't. They weren't the one who set the rules. They weren't the ones who 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 um, created, you know, homosexuality and effects. It wasn't them. So there's a could possibly be a lot of people who worked there, who observed and saw this, and who may suffer dreadfully today and and, and want to come clean. Um, I think yeah, it's time. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's very interesting. So as we take this path, um, also. We think about what could we do differently uh, because this problem isn't going away, it's escalating because this is part of life and evolution. There's always mental illness, mental, there's differences, there's all sorts of things. So how do we, and there's a lot of absent parents now, to be really honest. It wasn't just 70s and 80s and you know, there's a lot of parents absent from their children now too, even if they've got, even if they're present, they're absent because of the way our society is structured around material yeah. wealth and everything now. So, so this is an ongoing escalating problem and it won't be fixed until we fix the actual root cause, which is the environments we're creating for our children as a society. So can you think about we, we need to work together towards solutions too, not just, yes, you know, because these institutions too are just normal people running them like you and I. Yes. That yes. Their jobs are having to do that job. And there are honestly, because I've been in child protection and other places, there are honestly no one taking care of the kids and the state has to mm. until I think now 21. But so what do we do? I mean, what, what can we do differently when there are no people really wanting to take care of other people's kids in some sense? Look, that's a really good question. The children in our world who suffer most are those who through absolutely no fault of their own are really neglected, uh, are the ones who don't have. But that's also based on an assumption that children come from loving families. No, not all children do. Not at all. No, in fact, quite group. the opposite. Quite well, the that's opposite. like mine. I mean, my, my brother and I were completely unwanted <laughs> and that's, that, that was never lost on us. Um, but we wanted each other and we helped each other. Um, so this... So the children who are at most risk of, of being alone in the world and of being neglected and of mental illness and of all those issues are the ones who are unloved, are the ones who are who are who are not cared for, the ones who are brutalized. And and I I, I you know, I see that. Um I'm, I mean, I take my hat off to teachers and school teachers and counselors who do so much Me too. to make up. Especially oh, the teachers. The oh, teachers my goodness. Now, um, I take my hat off to them. I mean, I see, I know, the teachers just do so much more they do. than ever think. They are that plank. A lot of them are the missing plank. I mean, they were, certainly were for me. I, um, and also Mark Ryan, who's on the podcast. I don't know if you met him, but he also had the same story as well. And he had a mother that helped him get, and he happened to be really good at athletics too, which helped him secure scholarships, but that completely changed him and his brother's life 
as well. Yes. This, so I think this education scholarship- piece is really important, isn't it? Yeah. It's yeah. not and about earlier education. It's about finding, you know, nurturing environments at a societal level in a way. And, and certainly I think um, closing the gap uh, and especially the disadvantages of Indigenous kids and um, I, the other half of my family are Indigenous. Yeah. So that was another family secret as well. So you have you have a whole lot of disadvantages upon disadvantages upon layers of... Um, and But it's about... I, I am... I, I can actually honestly say, though, that, that I've broken the intergenerational cycles of trauma. Absolutely. I have broken it. I'm proud of yourself. I'm now proud of myself because I have broken it. Yes. You can break it. And you've got your own children too. Yes, and my grandchildren. Yes, exactly. And and I just think the message you want to send as well. You can break the cycle. You can break the cycle. Education is one piece of that. That's really big deal. It's huge. I, I would say that education was, for me, the, the core. It was the core that that allowed me to get out of the cycle and to break the cycle and to, to, to live a life without reproducing it. And, then- yes. and that brings us to how can we, because I see teachers are really stressed right now because of COVID and everything, and they are so important. So how do we, have you thought about what can we do to outside shout outs and thank yous and gratitude like thinking I spent a lot of time thinking about what can we do because they shouldn't be in charge of the children's well-being um, but what can we do as a society to support them in and like how do we elevate their status I guess as I do. pivotal role and, and again I mean it's not it's not coincidental that the majority of primary school teachers are female and I think the the number of, of teachers is still female. So that's not lost to me either. Um, and I, I think we need, you know, our teachers are so undervalued. They do such a great job. I think they're underpaid. I think they're overworked. I think the kind of the kind of the, taking the creativity out of the curriculum, I mean, I've got a lot of teachers who are friends, you know, rep- you know so that they just reproduce the same old, same old. You know, we, we, you know, the, the kind of educational policy is to just um, not let teachers have fun with kids anymore. I mean, there's, so I think there's stuff at the policy level, stuff at the celebrating teachers, um, and I just think we could do a hell of a lot more to support and celebrate teachers. Yeah, well, there's teacher shortages everywhere. There's stresses everywhere. Yeah. yeah, I noticed in the classroom there's a lot of classroom behaviour management and they get really skilled at doing that really, really well which allows them to then teach to the curriculum. But I think imagine if they didn't have to spend all their energy doing that too. You know what I mean? It seems to have got really much worse than what I remember. Um, I don't have an, I, I can't, I haven't been inside schools as a teacher or anything, so I can't make yeah. that observation. So back to your um, message of break the silence. I think there's the key message here is if we keep everything in silence, nothing will change. That's the bottom line. So it's not just about you trying to take down something. It's more about without breaking this silence, we can't make people aware because there's a lot of people that would be completely unaware because they've not been in touch with this kind of, they've never had exposure to this, right? Not everyone yes. does. Um, but without being aware, we can't make change. And then we need to come together as a society to make that big change because it's a it's a multi-layered change that we have to make. 
Absolutely. And we can do it together. And this is not about, this is not a negative, this is not driven by negative energy to, about vengeance. This is about let's seek justice for real and others like him so that one, we never do it again. Two, we do it better. Three, we start to look at what we really need to do now to, to, to break that cycle of intergenerational trauma and mental health and illness and uh, and disadvantage. So, it, it you know, there are, it, it's about inviting people to come on a positive journey as well. Um, Absolutely. I think that's key for, for us to really drive change is um, once you get through the trauma of, and grief of your life and seeing what happened to your family, the next step is, okay, how do we go to the next stage? Because we, we, we've got to change it, you know. Absolutely. So do do? Yeah. To do that, who do we support? What do we have to do? What are the policy settings? And that's mm. the beauty of being in justice, isn't it, Kerry, in your Absolutely. life? You've seen this happen, haven't you, before? Absolutely. And so one thing there, we can immediately, if we raise the age of, of, of criminal responsibility from 10 to 14, do you know they can put, they can make 10-year-olds? You understand the brain and brain development. 10-year-olds do not have the, the, a, a brain. That they is, have they, their self-regulation networks, basically, too. And plus stealing cars gets them attention. So uh, we wish you so much luck, Kerry, on this journey for Randall. Yes, thank you very much. And um, I wish you so much luck on your journey too for Francesca. Yeah, Randall and Francesca coming together on our podcast here. Absolutely. Yes. Okay, thank you for um, interviewing me. Oh, you're welcome. And good luck with uh, your book and your blog. And I'm sure you're going to start a podcast as well. I am. (laughs) So, okay. Thank you. Thank you so much.